what a special season this is, and I'm really pleased that uh, you've chosen to be with us today in worship. Well, Phillips Brooks was just burned out. Even though he was known as the most inspirational preacher of his era in the mid-1800s, he had lost his spiritual fervor. He just couldn't seem to get it back. Brooks had become the pastor of Holy Trinity Church in Philadelphia when he was only in his mid-twenties. And he soon convinced a, a, a wonderful Christian musician, an organist, a, a super salesman in his day job named Louis Redner to join him as his Sunday school superintendent. They started with 30 children, but within one year, The church had so exploded, they had over 1,000 children in Sunday school. And it it just kept on growing, partly because of Brooks' dynamic preaching, partly because of Redner's moving music. God was really changing people. But then came the Civil War, the U.S., and uh, the mood in the church began to turn somber. Women were wearing black to mourn their dead husbands and, and sons. Darkness fell over every facet of the worship service. And Brooks tried to be inspirational and lift people's spirits. But frankly, it was all just draining the life out of it. And then to make matters worse, when the war was finally uh, ending, Abraham Lincoln was assassinated. It was a horrific thing for the country, for Brooks, and although Brooks was called on to to preach at Lincoln's funeral, he he had to reach deep inside to come up with some appropriate words, but but he himself was rather spiritually dry. He just couldn't rekindle that flame. And so Phillips Brooks decided to do something about it. He, He asked his church for a sabbatical, and he went to the Holy Land. And on Christmas Eve, he and some others mounted horses in Jerusalem and went out for a ride. And wow, what happened that afternoon and evening changed his life and left a song in his soul for the rest of his life. He prayed. He spent time alone with God. At dusk, when the first stars were coming out, he rode into the tiny village of Bethlehem. And the town had honestly changed little since hundreds of years before when Jesus had been born there. It lifted Brooks' spirit to be there within just a few feet of the spot where Jesus had been born. There was singing in the church of the nativity, and it lifted his spirits. He knew that the Holy Spirit was in him and all around just blessing him. He wrote in his diary, and I quote, Again and again, it seemed as if I could hear voices I know well telling each other of the Savior's birth. Before dark, we rode out of the town to the field where they say the shepherds saw the angel. As we passed, shepherds were still keeping watch over their flocks. Somewhere in those fields, we rode through where the shepherds must have been. 
Well, as the night got increasingly dark, Brooks sat up on the hillside and, and gazed down into the tiny town of Bethlehem at the flickering lights there. He later told friends, the experience was so overpowering that there would forever be singing in my soul. A few weeks later, when his sabbatical was over, he came back to his church in Philadelphia, just renewed and excited about ministry again. He, he tried to explain it, but he couldn't find adequate words. Three years later, as Christmas season was approaching, he decided to try to put his experience in words, but not in prose. He decided to put it in poetry. And after... He wrote down this simple poem. He shared it with his music director, Louis Redner. And when Redner first read the words, O little town of Bethlehem, how still we see thee lie, he somehow realized the power of what Brooks had experienced in the Holy Land. He wanted to put music to those words. But as hard as he tried, he was frustrated. He went to bed on Christmas Eve feeling like he had failed. But somewhere in the middle of the night, a tune came to him as he was lying in bed. He got up, wiped the sleep from his eyes, and he suddenly realized that this tune fit the words to that poem perfectly. And so on Christmas morning, 1868, the hymn O little town of Bethlehem was complete. It immediately became a Christmas favorite in Philadelphia. And by the time that Phillips Brooks died in 1893, it was one of the favorite Christmas carols all around the world. O little town of Bethlehem, how still we see thee lie. Above thy deep and dreamless sleep, the silent stars go by. Yet in thy dark street shineth the everlasting light the hopes and fears of all the years are met in thee tonight. As we look into the Bible today at the traditional Christmas story, I want to invite you to consider something. In fact, I want to challenge and invite you to consider how God often uses the unexpected and even the insignificant things to accomplish his will. So uh, let's ponder that together as we go on this journey. First of all, I want you to consider that God chose a little town in which the Savior was to be born. A little town. I mean, Bethlehem certainly wasn't impressive. It was just kind of a suburb of Jerusalem. Scholars who've studied that era in time believe there were probably less than 150 people living in the little town of Bethlehem at the time Jesus was born. There was no significant crossroads there, uh, no notable resources to speak of. I mean, Bethlehem was just a quiet shepherd community, shepherding community. It was really only known for a couple of things, Really? It had been the birthplace of King David, the most beloved king of Israel. And, and this was significant, uh, it was prophesied to be the birthplace of the Messiah who would inherit David's throne. That's it. 
That's it. That's all it could possibly boast about. 700 years prior to when Christ was born, Micah the prophet had written about this in chapter 5. But you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you're small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from of old, from ancient times. Now notice, this ruler it's telling about would be born in Bethlehem, but that wouldn't be his origin. It says his origin is from ancient times. In other words, he would be eternal. He would be from everlasting to everlasting. But, but how in the world would that happen in such a small, insignificant town like Bethlehem? Well, some of you know this story well, and some of you who may be new to Christianity, to the Bible, uh, you may be hearing this amazing story for the first time. You see, here's how it happened. God sent the angel Gabriel to another insignificant town, 75 miles north of Bethlehem. He sent Gabriel to a virgin named Mary. She was to be the mother of the Messiah. Boy, that must have puzzled Gabriel. I mean, when you think about it, you know, Scripture says that angels are curious. They long to look into spiritual matters. And I can't help but wonder if Gabriel was puzzled. Maybe he wondered, boy, how is God going to pull this one off? How's the Messiah going to be born in Bethlehem? I wonder how the pieces to the puzzle will fit. So I imagine Gabriel watched this whole thing closely. Month after month, five months, six months, seven months, still nothing. Eight months, eight and a half months still, Joseph and Mary, who were pledged to be married, still had no plans to go to Bethlehem. And it wasn't likely that Mary would even travel now in her condition. But Luke's gospel, chapter 2, verse 1 tells us this, that in those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. Now, well, how, could, how could Caesar be so insensitive as to levy another tax on these oppressed and somewhat poverty-stricken people? Politicians are always looking for more revenue, more money to do things, but, but how could he do that? And why now? Proverbs 21.1 reads, the king's heart is in the hand of the Lord, and he directs it like a water course wherever he pleases. Oh, Caesar thought he was awfully clever raising taxes, but really God was working through his actions sovereignly to help fulfill prophecy. Luke goes on in chapter 2, and everyone went to his own town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. Now, I imagine at this point that Gabriel finally clicked, it all clicked, and Gabriel was duly impressed with the sovereignty and the foreknowledge 
of Almighty God. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. You know, there's an old saying, God swings big doors on little hinges. I like that saying. It's one of my favorites. God swings big doors on little hinges. And God often selects small places to do big things. A famous cartoon used to be published every February in this country. It was always published in many newspapers around the time of Abraham, Abraham Lincoln's birth. And the cartoon had two old country farmers, just backwoodsy guys talking over a rail fence. And one of them says to the other, anything new? The other said, no. You know how it is around here, nothing new. Oh, oh they say Nancy Lincoln gave birth to a baby boy last night, but you know... Nothing really important ever happens around here. Who would have ever guessed that America's most beloved president would have been born in the tiny little town of Hodgkinville, Kentucky? And yet God still chooses the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, the weak things to shame the strong. But you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you're small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel. Isn't it amazing? Isn't it amazing how God swings big doors on little hinges. God chose a little town. And second, I want you to consider that God chose a peasant couple. I mean, a couple you would never, ever expect. Phillips Brooks wrote, for Christ is born of Mary and gathered all above. While mortals sleep, the angels keep their watch of wondering love. Have you ever considered that Jesus' human parents were really unimpressive in the eyes of the world? Now, Mary, oh, she was special in God's eyes, but to the elite of Judea, are you kidding me? They didn't know who she was, nor did they care. She was from Nazareth. That was a hick town. There was even a saying in the culture, can anything good come out of Nazareth? It was sarcastic because it was such a podunk, nowheresville kind of town. Nazareth wasn't all that much larger than Bethlehem. It it was less than 300 people at the time Joseph and Mary lived there. And Joseph, my goodness, Joseph, he was just a carpenter. Now, being a carpenter was a, a noble profession then just as it is now. But you know, carpenters, they didn't make much money. It was kind of a hand-to-mouth sort of way to make a living. And Joseph and Mary were so poor, so poor, that when it came time to offer the sacrifice for their newborn child as the Levitical law had required, you know what? The scripture says they did not offer a lamb, but two young doves as Leviticus 5, 7 had prescribed for those who were extremely poor. 
And so that's what they did. They were such nobodies. You know what? I wonder if you would have even let Mary babysit your children today. Would you, would you have let her even stayed for a few hours with your children? Such a young girl with little or no experience with children. Would you have even hired her as your babysitter? And yet, God entrusted his son to this inexperienced but godly peasant couple, and Christ was indeed born of Mary. You know, brothers and sisters, God often chooses people the world labels as insignificant to do his will. David was just an overlooked shepherd boy when Samuel anointed him as the next king of Israel. Gideon was just a timid, sheepish kind of farmer when God commissioned him to be a general in the army. And when it came time to choose apostles, Jesus didn't choose the intellectual elite or the most creative promoters or or the most brilliant entrepreneurs, the, the power people of his day. No. He chose fishermen, tax collector, just ordinary men, but with those 12 dedicated guys, he rocked the world for his kingdom. Now, some of you are thinking, aren't there exceptions? Oh, sure there are. God occasionally chooses a a brilliant apostle Paul or or a phenomenal writer like a C.S. Lewis, but, but those are the exception, not the rule. God often has to make do with ordinary people like Mary and Joseph, ordinary people like like you and like me. 1 Corinthians 1 reads, Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. And I would suggest to you that that is true in every walk of life. God often raises up people from very unimpressive backgrounds to do his will. General Dwight D. Eisenhower, the man who became the allied commander uh, during World War II and led the D-Day invasion and eventually became president of the United States, had a very unimpressive beginning. Did you know that? (laughs) It's kind of funny. He was was the third son of of a Midwestern failed merchant who became a creamery worker. When it came time to go to school, Ike, Ike didn't choose the military because he had great dreams for his life or he just loved the military. He chose West Point because they would give him a free education in return for a few years of service. And after an indifferent cadetship, I mean, he only graduated somewhere around the middle of his class, he embarked on an undistinguished career as a staff officer and he kind of stalled in his career, at the middling rank of major for 16 solid years. 
His first visit to the White House was kind of comical. I mean, they misspelled his name and mispronounced his name over and over again. The White House log on February the 9th, 1942, recorded the initial visit to the Oval Office of a P.D. Eisenhower. And not only is the P.D. obviously wrong, but Eisenhower is spelled wrong. In spite of all that, he was commissioned to lead the English-American invasion of North Africa. But even that was initially a disaster. In the first week alone, the Allied forces were pushed back 85 miles, and the casualties totaled over 6,000 men. Eisenhower was responsible for that. As the commander, he was humiliated. But to his credit, he studied his mistakes. He grew in his leadership. His leadership ripened, and with time, he became more seasoned. And eventually, God used an unlikely man, a lieutenant colonel, who had never so much as commanded a single platoon in actual actual battle to become a four-star general and lead the Allied forces in the defeat of the evils of Nazism. He dumbfounded the British brass, and even George S. Patton said of Eisenhower that the DD, the initials DD in his name, must stand for divine destiny. You know what excites me? What really excites me is that sitting here right now are some people that you might never notice. Maybe even a young person that doesn't have the best grades or the most wonderful family pedigree. They're not the most talented or perhaps not even the most striking in appearance. But something's going to happen. Somewhere along the way, God's going to tap them on the shoulder. And God's going to use them to reach the masses with his gospel. God's going to use them to feed the hungry and help the hurting and find a cure for a dreaded disease. And the world will once again be amazed at the power and the grace of God. Daniel 4.17 says, God chooses some people so that the living may know that the Most High is sovereign over the kingdoms of men and that he gives them to anyone he wishes and sets over them the lowliest of men. What a God we serve. God chose a little town. He chose a peasant couple. But most amazing of all to me, and I invite you to consider this for a few moments with me, God chose to enter the world as a helpless infant. (laughs) Incredible. Now, if I were to buy my wife expensive jewelry this Christmas, by the way, this is just hypothetical, okay? Debbie, I hope she doesn't get excited if she's listening right now. just hypothetical. You know what? If I were to buy her expensive jewelry, you know, I'd want her to know it's expensive. See, my problem is I can't tell just by looking at her whether it's really expensive or whether it's just cheap. 
I can't tell. But, and I might wonder, well, maybe she can't tell either. You know? And so I would be prone to leave the price tag on and then apologize <laughs> later, you know? Or I'd be prone to kind of drop a hint. You know, hon, uh, we might want to try to increase our home insurance a little bit just to make sure this is covered, you know? I try to find it some way to let her know this gift is precious. But you know, when God gave his only son, there was almost no indication how valuable this gift really was. He came to earth silently, humbly, as a helpless baby. Ken Geyer, in his book, Intimate Moments with the Savior, writes, Deity nursing from a mother, young maiden's breast. Could anything be more puzzling or more profound? The divine word reduced to a few unintelligible sounds. Then for the first time, his eyes fix on his mother's deity straining to focus. The light of the world squinting. Tears pool in her eyes. She touches his tiny hand. And hands that once sculpted mountain ranges cling to her fingers. Do you understand the wonder of the incarnation this Christmas? But the question I'm asking is why? Why would God come as a helpless infant? I mean, he's God. He can come any way he really wants to. Wouldn't it be spectacular if he came as a 10-foot giant flanked by impressive armies? But as we move toward the close of our message today, I want to mention just a couple of reasons why I believe Jesus came as a helpless baby. Now, by the way, obviously the main reason for his coming is to save us from our sins. I, I hope we all know that. I You know, when John, the baptizer, saw Jesus coming to be baptized, he made this amazing statement, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus came to deal with our sin. That's the greatest news of all at Christmas. It's not just some little nostalgic thing that we get to celebrate this time of year. He came to pay the penalty that my sins and yours demanded. Even the angel in the announcement that was made said, you'll call his name Jesus for he shall save his people from their sins. Obviously, that's the main reason. But I want to suggest to you a couple more, okay? I think Jesus came as he did to identify with our painful struggles, Someone imagined Judgment Day and people from all walks of life standing in line waiting to be evaluated by the Almighty. And some of them, as they were waiting, began to grumble. Who is God to judge us? He lives here in this perfect environment. He doesn't know what we went through. How can he possibly pass judgment on us? And so they formed a committee and developed a series of accusations against God. I mean, if he were really going to judge them fairly, he would need to experience some of the horrible abuses that they knew on earth. 
a survivor of the Holocaust, said, let him be born to a despised race. A homeless man insisted, let him grow up in poverty. A grief-stricken teenager whined, let one of his parents die when he's young and leave him to weep night after night. A man who grew up in a broken home cried, let the legitimacy of his parents be questioned and then have him grow up in a single-parent home. A blue-collar worker said, let him have to work hard every day with his hands and get calluses and live by the sweat of his brow to make a living. A divorcee complained, let him be betrayed by someone he really loves. A prisoner of war bitterly suggested, let him be tortured and taunted by enemies who hate him. A terminally ill patient sneered, let him know he's going to die and then have to struggle for every breath. And on and on, the accusations kept coming and each one was cheered by the crowd. But after they were all read, the audience grew silent because they realized they realized God had already served his sentence. In one act of becoming human, Jesus identified with our pain. So no one, and I mean no one today, can say God doesn't understand. No one can say he's not qualified to judge. The writer of Hebrews says, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all ways as we are, yet without sin. And secondly today, I believe Jesus came as an infant in part to illustrate how God normally, underscore the word normally there, works in our lives today. You know, I know a lot of wonderful Christians, and I want to tell you, I love the brothers and sisters that are a part of this church. I love them. I just pray for them, and I want to encourage everyone I know that's a part of this body to be all God designed them to be. But you know what? As I, as I listen to Christians sometimes, dearly beloved brothers and sisters in the body here, I sometimes, I sometimes get the impression that they believe God always works this ba-ba-ba-ba-ba supernaturally, dramatically, with a drum roll, with bling. And you know what? You know what? Sometimes he does. Boy, I've seen it. Have you? I've seen God do amazing miracles. I've seen God change lives spectacularly where you're left shaking your head in amazement going, how did God do that? He does that. But can I tell you, in my experience, normally he works quietly, patiently, and almost silently in our lives. That's what Elijah the prophet found. When Elijah was looking for God, he didn't find him in the destructive fire or in the violent earthquake or in the rushing wind. God came to Elijah in a still, small voice. (laughs) He heard him in a whisper, a whisper. 
Brooks wrote, how silently, how silently the wondrous gift is given. So God imparts to human hearts the blessings of his heaven. No ear may hear his coming, but in this world of sin, where meek souls will receive him still, the dear Christ enters in. Charlene Bombic loves Christmas, and she usually gets real excited and makes everybody around her excited too. But some years ago, Charlene had trouble getting into the Christmas spirit because she was going, she had a medical challenge, physical challenge. Right after Christmas, she was going to be having an operation. And so she was kind of concerned about that and her spirits were down. And so trying to get her mind off of her upcoming surgery, she decided to do something that was a little crazy for her. She decided to get her picture taken with Santa Claus and then just give it to her sons and to her husband as a humorous gift. Well, one afternoon at a nearby mall, she spotted a Santa who happened to be unoccupied at that moment. And she went over and asked him, could she have her picture taken with him? And he seemed delighted. And so she squeezed in beside him uh, for the photo. And then the congenial Mr. Claus turned to Charlene and with a twinkle in his eye said, so what would you like for Christmas? And without engaging her brain, Charlene blurted out, well, Santa, honestly, I'm having an operation the Wednesday after Christmas, Christmas, and quite frankly, I would like a quick healing. And then she was mortified because she realized she had just spilled her personal things to a total stranger. But Santa looked deep into her eyes and said, I'll pray for you, and so will Mrs. Claus. And Charlene, moved by his sincerity, started to cry. That was just what she needed to hear. You know what I've discovered? It's often not the big things, but the little things in life that make a difference. Just somebody saying, hey, I'm praying for you. Or I pray for you every week. Just somebody writing a little personal word of encouragement at the bottom of a Christmas card, that's all. Just somebody maybe baking a cake for a neighbor that's shut in or, or seldom seen. Maybe just calling a relative that's not expecting your call, but, but truly, truly appreciate. It's little things. It's little things that make special Christmas traditions, i found. At our house, we, we just read Luke chapter 2, the traditional Christmas story at Christmas. It just has become a very special part of Christmas for us. Or, or when your children are little, it might be singing happy birthday to Jesus uh, on Christmas, and that becomes a part of it. Or maybe it's attending Christmas Eve services together as a family. Don't, don't miss the little things. God swings big doors on little hinges. I just got back uh, Wednesday from a week of ministry in Poland uh, where I had uh, lectured for 12 hours in the Baptist, Warsaw Baptist Theological Seminary. And even though I'm not Baptist, uh, they embrace me warmly. In fact, the school has all kinds of denominations represented. And there are people there from all over Europe, from Germany and from, from the UK and, and from the Ukraine and Russia and, of course, all over Poland. It was a great week. 
And I, I was a little wrung out by the end of it. I spoke to so many different pastors groups up in Gdansk and, and Warsaw and Rod, Radosh and uh, numerous places. And it was just a wonderful investment of time. But, but one of the highlights for me was last Sunday morning, I had the privilege of speaking at the historic First Baptist Church of Warsaw, Poland. Warsaw is a city of over 2 million people, uh, a very prosperous city these days. And man, I had a blast there. And after the service, a young professional couple walked up. I, I, I was pleased I didn't have to use my translator with them because they spoke perfect English, although they were, they were Polish. And as I asked them questions, they, they said, we were really inspired by the message today and we wanted to talk to you if we could. And so I kind of turned aside from the, the main group in the lobby that was coming by. And so we began to talk and I I found out that they had grown up in the traditional church of Poland, but as they'd gotten married, they'd found marriage to be very difficult. And so they were looking for answers. They were looking for, does Christianity have anything that can really make a difference in our day-by-day lives? And I said, well, how did you, they said it was their first time there. And I said, how did you come to choose this church and come today? They said, well, we, we, we watched the movie Fireproof that the church was sponsoring, and it made us want to come and check it out. And so I shared my five-minute version of the gospel with them, and I encouraged them, and I connected them to staff leaders in the church so they could get involved in a Bible study and see what God might do. Now, think about that. Not a big deal, just a film, watching a film. But God swung a big door on a little hinge. Philip Brooks wrote, it's while you are patiently toiling at the little task of life that the meaning and shape of the great whole of life dawns on you. And so here's my my final word to you this Christmas season. If you're looking for God in a spectacular miracle, you know what? I hope you get it. I hope God shows up and blows your mind. But are you still listening? If you're insisting, if you're insisting that God meet you in dramatic ways, I'm afraid you're going to miss God. Because God often uses the unexpected, unnoticed, in seemingly insignificant things to work his will. He chose a little town. He chose a peasant couple. He chose to enter this world as a helpless infant born in a manger wrapped in swaddling clothes. And today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. Today, if God is tapping you on the shoulder, listen, today, if God is whispering, if God is nudging you to take a step toward him, do not harden your heart. God swings big doors on little hinges. It's often the little things in life that God uses to make a profound difference. His ways are not our ways. They're so much better, aren't they? His ways lead to forgiveness. His ways lead to meaning and peace. His ways lead 
to eternal life. Let's pray together. O holy child of Bethlehem, descend to us, we pray. Cast out our sin and enter in. Be born in us today. We hear the Christmas angels, the great glad tidings tell. Oh, come to us, abide in us, our Lord Emmanuel. Father, as you continue to do your work this Christmas season, would you amaze us by how you work silently, quietly, often through people and situations we would never guess to bring about your perfect will. Help us to not miss it. Help us to not miss it because we're looking perhaps for something a little more dramatic. Help us to see how your, your ways are not our ways. In Jesus' name we pray, amen and amen.